worth saying, though, by the way, that the key function of the modern educational system, particularly at higher and secondary level, is not education, it's certification. It's giving out bits exactly. of paper that people use to get access to high-paid jobs. Exactly. And what we currently have is an elite who owe their position and status to possession of these bits of paper. So they're yeah. going to be very, very unhappy about this. But the, yeah. the problem is there's too much of them. We are producing way too many people with these bits of paper for the number of high status positions that there are. And that's causing a lot of angst. So all this um, woke politics that you get at the moment in North America, my view is that that is actually a product of elite overproduction. Hi, my name is David Witt. I'm the Chief Economist uh, and Director of a financial services company called The Efficient Group. And I guess you can call me a libertarian or a liberal or a freedom lover, or you can even call me a radical anarchist. I really do not care. And if you don't know what that means, we're going to find out a little bit later. Uh, I am the presenter of Worldview. And Worldview is a podcast where we explore everybody's perspective on all things that can broaden our world view. Now, today, the talk today will be about, well, all sorts of things. It will be about politics, or will be, which is quite bizarre, I would say. There are some important changes happening globally. It will be about macroeconomics. Econ there are really a couple of things happening that is very difficult to understand. Interest rates at, at zero or below zero, massive debt levels. Yet the markets seem to like all of this, and the markets are at record high levels. And today, our guest is a very, very special person. I've listened to many of your podcasts, I've read some of you what you've written, uh, and I think you can be called a libertarian, and you are the a libertarian, and you are the head of education at IEA, and the author of many, many books, and that is, of course, Dr. Stephen Davies. Dr. Davies, good morning, well, good day to you, and very, very nice talking to you. Yeah, nice to be on. Yeah. Let's start off with the question that I've got some difficulty <clears throat> answering myself, and that is the difference between a liberal or a libertarian or a free world marketer, or like I've said, I wouldn't mind be, being called uh, an anarchist and even a radical anarchist. Everybody seems to think they are something, but nobody really understands what mm. all these different terminologies really mean. Well, um, they actually do refer to slightly different things, which is what the confusion uh, arises from, because they also overlap. So. The first one is a free market person is simply somebody who has a particular view of economics, who thinks that broadly speaking, free markets are the most successful kind of economic policy or uh, setup to follow. Now, you can be that, you can believe that without being uh, some of the other things. So not all people who are free marketeers are also liberals or libertarians, much or even much less anarchists. You know, conservatives, a lot of social democrats, smart technocrats, they can all be free market supporters. Um, a classical liberal, um, or a liberal as they would say on the continent, we have to qualify it because of the ruddy Americans who have misused the word. Um, a classical liberal is somebody who adheres to the traditional doctrines of liberalism that were formulated in the 18th and 19th and early 20th centuries. In other words, before liberalism developed a kind of uh, social democratic wing in the early 20th century. So it's the um, traditional form of liberalism which emphasizes limited government, a small range for politics, uh, and cultural and social individualism. Libertarians, this word originally meant 
uh, anarchists. Uh, and it was actually a French word which was used in the late 19th century to describe um, anarchists of any kind, both communist anarchists of the Peter Kropotkin type and individualist anarchists like Benjamin Tucker and many, many French anarchists actually. Uh, and it still does tend to imply that you're either a very extreme anti-statist or an outright anarchist. Um, it's become used more recently uh, because Americans, American classical liberals, want to find a way of distinguishing themselves from conservatives. And so they've adopted this label libertarian. And what it tends to mean in practice is a more uh, kind of ideological commitment to certain ideas, particularly natural rights based uh, or deontological theories of liberty, whereas classical liberals tend very often to be um, consequentialist uh, liberals, uh, utilitarians and so on. Uh, and then, of course, anarchist simply means it's a very wide range. It just means that you do not think that government is either necessary or good. Uh, okay. and that the human race would actually be able to manage without government and that it would probably do better if it, it did that. Uh, and you can, that can be combined with any number of different, you know, or economic theories. And as I said, it includes both, you know, uh, anarcho-capitalists like Rothbard and anarcho-communists like Kropotkin or Bakunin. Well, I'm happy to be called an anarchist. Let uh, me call me free market anarchist, I guess. And people mm. tend to to think if you call yourself an anarchist, you run around in the streets and you burn stuff down. That certainly is not the case. An anarchist no, is no. somebody radical anti-statist. I guess yes, that is no. perhaps a good explanation of that. But you're a historian, and I can tell you as an economist, I know if you, if you really want to understand something about economics, I go to historians because they really understand economics much better than the rest of us. And unfortunately, I think economics has become too, there are too many numbers. Uh, yeah. economics professor they think they think they have to teach formulas and all sort of complicated stuff to the students well there's much more to economics and i think economics is basically the study of humankind in a way but but let me ask you this question and something that i'm very curious about and something i'm very excited about in some of the recent developments on things like for example private currencies i think people call it cryptocurrencies which i think is wrong because normal uh, fiat can also be encrypted but nevertheless We've had a number of really amazing economic discoveries in the last couple of thousands of years. If I ask you, if you can name some of those greatest economic discoveries of all times, what will it be? Will it be the protection of private property rights? Will it be trade? Uh, will, it, will it be money? What's it, what's it, will it be the wheel of fire? What's it going to be? Well, uh, <clears throat> most of the, when you're talking about the economics, I don't think discovery is the right word because that implies a particular person having a light bulb moment and thinking about something. It's rather that things like money or private property rights or trade, they're emergent social practices. They're things that gradually appear as lots and lots of people in different places work out ways of resolving problems. So uh, the three you mentioned there, trade I think is, as far as we could tell, human beings have been at doing this ever since our species really first appeared in Africa all those you know tens of thousands of years ago. Uh, Adam Smith seems to have been quite right when he said that human beings have a natural propensity to truck barter and exchange. Uh, Paul Seabright wrote a brilliant book a few years ago called The Company of Strangers which looked at the kind of historical anthropology of trade. So in a way that has always been part of our uh, existence as a species. I think that of the two you mentioned I would actually say that in terms of the long-term effects, the development of private property, 
uh, and tradable private property was the really most important one. Uh, without that, settled civilization is simply not possible. And people yeah. think that, many people think that property is created by political power. And so the argument is that if you don't have government, you can't have property because uh, it's governments that create property, create and instantiate property rights. But actually, the empirical evidence as discovered by people like Harold Demsetz and many anthropologists is that that's simply not true. Uh, property arises typically as a spontaneous uh, emergent institution. And Demsetz showed how this happened, for example, in the case of American Indians with the fur trade appearing. And it arises, as David Hume argued over 200 years ago, from a combination of two things, the scarcity of resources and the limitations of human benevolence. Uh, and the, the reason why we have property is actually to prevent conflict. So you don't have property in resources that are either not consumed or desired, or where the ratio of population to the resource is sufficiently low that there's no real intense competition for access to that resource. So property was an invention that was enabled that enabled human beings to live together in complicated societies without uh, killing each other over access to resources. So that was absolutely vital. I would put money uh, just after that because you can have a society with quite complicated trade and economic systems without money. We have historical examples yeah. of that. So I'd say money is important, but not quite as important as private property. Yeah, I could just mention that I'm, where I'm sitting right now is not too far away from what we call the cradle of humankind. And most recently, it was a discovery of a new hominid there. It's called Homo naledi. And, and of course, there are many other examples of the <coughs> scenes that have been discovered in this part of the world where I find myself today. And also, by the way, the oldest signs of, uh, of, um, of, 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 of art is also not too far from me. From me. And that is uh, that's dated back about 100,000 years in the Southern Cape. And that apparently, according to the clever people, that's his first sign of abstract thinking. So perhaps I am indeed sitting at the beginning right now from where we started as a species. But, you know, quite when people refer to the good old days and things were so much better in the good old days. But look around at our life expectancy today, the wealth that we've accumulated. And I've got a suspicion that this wealth creation this process of wealth creation is simply accelerating. Uh, we have uplifted literally hundreds of millions of people out of abject poverty the last couple of, only the last couple of, of days. Is this going to go on forever? Are we really living in such good times? Uh, well, it, it could indeed go on forever. I mean, I think it is not, it is not in my view, theoretically impossible for it to go on forever. Uh, and the reason why I think that is this, if you look at the whole course of human history, it isn't a case that you have a kind of long, slow process. What you find is that throughout most of human history, the standard of living, the economic well-being of people is roughly constant. There are episodes when things suddenly get a lot better, people get a lot richer, like in the lands around the Mediterranean during the second century AD or in the Middle East in the eighth century AD. But these are short lived. Now, what has happened in the last 200 years or maybe 250 years or so is that suddenly that process has a accelerated and continued to accelerate and it's also kept on going and that is why we today are as a species are 30 times richer than we were 250 years ago it's a staggering increase in our control of the environment the amount of physical comfort and wealth uh, that the human race has the human species has and so that that's something relatively recent historically uh, it's a dramatic transformation of human existence. Now, what is driving it? 
Well, what is driving it ultimately is innovation. Uh, it's the inventiveness of human beings uh, that is doing this. Uh, and the fact that in the last 250 years, unlike in previous history, that inventiveness has not been constrained or held back by social institutions and political power. Uh, and there's no theoretical reason uh, to do with the nature of the universe or the nature of the physical world, why that human inventiveness cannot continue discovering new ways to do things and make people better off indefinitely. Uh, and so that's why, provided certain things happen, I think it can uh, continue indefinitely. Yeah, but it's not only that. I would argue that certain political, well, new polit political stru structures or social structures, for instance, also made it possible for us. Yeah. Uh, with this huge explosion of creativity as well. But but it seems to me as there's something new happening in the world today as well, some realignments politically at least. Uh, can you can you identify some of these role players? What's happening <clears throat> yeah. now? Yes, this, this is a this is a thesis I've put forward in several places in one of my books, for example. Um, my argument is essentially that and this is an argument which I first developed about ten years ago, and at that time it was a prophecy. But it's since become an analysis because the property is going to come to pass uh, and it's now quite a commonplace and in any political society that has representative democracy you find that typically there are always just two sides to politics which we conventionally call left and right but you can give them other names if you like and these two sides um are identified by a particularly important aligning issue as it is. There is one issue that has a particularly high salience. It matters to an awful lot of people, including people with powerful uh, power and money and resources. And so basically people who, although they may disagree about lots of other things, they if they have the same position on that aligning issue with somebody else, they will regard themselves as being on the same broad side, left or right. Yeah. Uh, now, what happens periodically, however, over the last 200 years or more, is that that aligning issue changes because uh, one issue becomes largely exhausted and a new issue, a new division of interest in society takes its place. And what that means when the new issue appears is that lots of people who were on the same side of the old issue suddenly find that they're on different sides of the new issue. Uh, and so friends become foes. Conversely, people who were opposed to each other before suddenly find that they're allied. And you have a period, a realignment of great political confusion and you know, shuffling of the deck, if you will, and then it starts to settle down. And we're in such a realignment at the moment. And I think the key to it is this. Since really the 1920s, um, the dominant division in politics in most developed societies has been between people who think that the government and the political process should have a lot to do with uh, economic life, that the government should intervene, it should maybe own commercial companies and assets, uh, it should tax very heavily, redistribute income a lot, have a large expansive role. And on the other hand, there are people who think that you should leave most of this to voluntary action and the free market. And that's been the big division. Now, that division is beginning to fade away, uh, mainly because I think of the uh, the failure of the dominant models of a state-directed economy. And what you're seeing instead is the growth of a new division, which is mainly about questions of uh, identity, ultimately. And in particular, it's about the division between national or local identity and global identity. It's also, very importantly, about the division between globally connected, uh, very cosmopolitan, large city regions, 
and rural areas and small towns. You can see this split pretty much everywhere in the world politically. And so we're seeing a new political alignment begin to emerge between what I call national collectivists on the one hand, uh, and on the other hand, um, the uh, this newly version cosmopolitan yeah. uh, liberalism or cosmopolitan globalism, basically. And that is what's playing out in the United States. It's playing out in most European countries. There are a few exceptions, not happening in Japan, for example, uh, things are a bit different in Africa, but it's also happening in countries like India, Turkey, uh, most of Latin America. So this is a kind of global political shift that we're seeing at the moment. And also interesting is that, you know, since the pandemic last year, I mean, everybody's working from home and you get this, uh, uh, let's call it people that are much more in tune with new technological changes and those that are a little bit more divorced from that. I guess that's also the right. Yeah, very much so. Uh, in fact, what got me started thinking about this was, a really brilliant book which was written 20 years ago now by a friend of mine called Virginia Postrel uh, called The Future and Its Enemies. And she pointed out that one of the big emerging cultural divisions in modern societies is over technology and innovation. Yeah. And on the one hand, you have people who welcome the new technology, like the innovation, they like the transformation it brings to the world. And on the other hand are people who don't like this, who resist it. Um, the, and she, she called this the split between dynamists and stasists. And she pointed out that the stasis, the people who basically are saying, look, the world is changing too fast. Stop it. I want to get off now. These people, you find them on both the traditional left and the traditional right. So she look, looked at the big demonstrations against the World Trade Organization in Seattle. Yeah. Who is against it? Well, on the one hand, these black bloc anarchists, anarcho-communists, you know, basically, but also Pat Buchanan and the arch conservatives in the United States. And... Uh, yes, you're exactly right. There is a big division, if you like, over what the potential and possibility of new technology is. And there are lots of people from the old right and the old left who do not like it and who think that really we need to go into a, a, a world where we pull back from technology and limit it. Uh, you see a lot of this in radical deep green thinking, for example. On the other hand, there are a certain kind of socialists who, you know, uh, so-called post-capitalist people like Paul Mason who embrace the new technology so the people who like the new technology have an internal division as well between people who think yes this is the chance to get to full luxury communism or some such nonsense um, and and also people like perhaps yourself and me. Uh, so, well you're from Britain I, uh, uh, this new identity politics as you call it isn't isn't that part of the reason why we saw Brexit happening and you've you've written a book Yes, the indeed, I have, yes. Of Brexit. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, uh, the, one of my key arguments in that book is that uh, a lot of people think that Brexit caused a political realignment in Britain, but actually it's the other way around. What the realignment, the sort of shift in people's political identity and voting pattern had been going on for a long time, and it led to the appearance of UKIP, which then provoked David Cameron into the uh, decision to call the referendum and then led to the outcome of the referendum. So Brexit was the consequence of this shift in identity, yes. Uh, but interestingly, it cuts across the division between globalism and um, localism because a lot of the vote for Brexit was an anti-globalist vote. But quite a few of the people who supported it also want a more global, open uh, trade and economic policy for Britain. So I can see a bit of, you know, uh, trouble coming there at the moment uh, in the future for and smart politicians going to take advantage of that tension no doubt could that could that the strength continue in northern well in ireland and in scotland even maybe see the end of the union soon uh i think well 
Let me just say something. Um, personally, I've supported Scottish independence since I was about 20. Uh, I think it would be a thoroughly good idea for everyone, not least for the English, actually. Um, and the I generally, as a rule of thumb, support breaking up larger countries into smaller countries uh, on the basis that the less part, the less of a planet's population and uh, surface area a bunch of people can control, the less mischief they can do. You know, if Hitler had gone back to Austria at the end of World War One and become dictator of Austria, that would have been bad news for Austrians and particularly the Jews. But there wouldn't have been a problem for the rest of us. The problem was he stayed in Germany and got control of a large part of the world. So I generally favour breaking up countries. I actually think that Scottish independence is less likely now than it was before Brexit um, because uh, the if Scotland now leaves the UK, um, the EU, if Scotland were to apply then to rejoin the EU, would insist on a hard border between uh, England and Scotland. And that would be absolutely devastating for the Scottish economy. And it's a much more scary prospect. So if Scotland's become independent now, it would have to basically do so outside the EU. And a significant number of the people who support Scottish independence are not prepared to support it if it means. Um, and so I actually think that if there's to be another referendum, and I think if Boris Johnson is smart, he'll hold another referendum, the vote would be something like it was last time, about maybe 52-48, 55-45 in favour of staying in the Union. Ireland, on the other hand, I think the prospect of a united Ireland in the next uh, 15 to 20 years is pretty high. Uh, and. Mm -hmm. Uh, that, again, would in many ways be a good thing, but it, it would cause big problems for the Irish Republic. I mean, I think the people who are actually most nervous about that are the governing class of the Irish Republic, who will suddenly have to cope with a million angry Protestants who don't want to be part of their country. That would be pretty pretty traumatic. Yeah. Well, going back, let's, let's leave Britain for a moment, but the world today is completely different. We've been talking about uh, how the progress that we've made, poverty is not the main thing anymore. We're making much less war today than in the past. Yeah. The kind of challenges that we have, even crime is down quite significantly globally. Yeah. But there are the other kinds of challenges today. What are those challenges? It's certainly not poverty anymore, really. Is there other, what about things like, for example, inequality? What, what are some of the other challenges? Or the environment, that's another good example of some challenges. Well, I think if you talk to young people today, the two things they are most concerned about are the two you mentioned there, inequality, and climate change and well environmental challenges more generally in terms of inequality i think that one of the problems is there's people constantly conflate and confuse wealth and income and if you look at the historical statistics wealth uh, inequality inequality of the ownership of capital assets is is actually incredibly constant and stable it's hardly changed really over the last 150 years uh, inequality of income, on the other hand, has gotten more extreme in the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, now, if you look at what's driving that, though, the reason is that um, the very, very top uh, of the income range, the top, not even 1%, maybe 10th of 1%, have pulled away from the rest of the top 10%, because the ratio between the top 10% and the 10% below them has remained pretty constant. It's that there's a very small group of extremely high income earners at the top. Now, why is that? Well, um, Thomas Piketty's book, of course, attracted a lot of attention for this. And I think one of the big problems with that book, there are several, was that he didn't take his historical data back far enough. If you look at the really long run historical data, 
qualifying for the fact that a lot of it's a bit uncertain. What you can see is that every time there is a major technological breakthrough, a major suite of technological innovations, you get this sudden expansion in income inequality. And that's because some people, through good luck or good judgment, happen to make enormous first adopter benefits from the impact of the new technology. Um, and then what happens is that as the new technologies become mature and become normal, so to speak, uh, the return that you get from those new technologies declines. And so then eventually the, you know, the, the first adopters are still there or their children are with a huge income and wealth they've accumulated, but everybody else, the income differential shrinks quite dramatically. So I think that actually the, the problem of equality is going to be self-resolving. It's yeah. going to um, increase for about another decade, maybe 15 years, and then it's actually going to be self-correcting, um, regardless of what the politicians do, simply because of the way yeah. all the technologies that we currently see, IT, communications technology, most obviously social media, things like that, yeah. which are creating these huge new fortunes, and also very pronounced winner-takes-all labour markets, they're going to become normalised and the returns will decline. Now, the question of the environment is different. Regardless of what you think about climate change, I think the reality is that we're now living in what scientists call the Anthropocene. Um, we're living in an era where we as a species can actually have a significant impact on the planet, on uh, the biosphere, on the environment and everything else. And the challenge which we face, really, and I think this is a very serious challenge, is how do we manage this so that we don't, if you like, totally wreck the nest, uh, cause irreversible uh, systemic damage of some kind or other, which would in the long run obviously backfire on us massively. Uh, and the the kind of one common answer is so what you need basically is a world government. You need global governance. And I think that's seriously wrong-headed, actually. Mm -hmm. What you need more than ever is decentralised uh, political order, because that's what will lead to, firstly, the innovations that we need, technological and social innovations that we need for dealing with this challenge. And secondly, as with property, I think it will lead ultimately to the bottom-up emergence of institutions and norms and rules that will uh, you know, contain the damaging effects we have. There are a couple of concrete things. One of the things I've written about and argued is that we need to somehow find a way of getting rid of agriculture. Uh, because actually, I think agriculture, farming, is the human activity that has the most damaging effect on the biosphere. That's what lies behind most of species loss, for example, habitat destruction and so on. Um, and fortunately, I think we are close to being able to get rid of agriculture, because I think within 10 years, people will begin to think it was really strange that you actually ate meat from dead animals. Now, we will not be vegetarians or vegans. We will still be eating meat, but we'll be eating cultured meat rather than meat that's come from an actual living creature. And similarly, I think most flour uh, and grain will be produced artificially um, rather than by cultivating grain. So I think that is a, an example of the kind of technological innovation that I think will make our impact on the biosphere much, much less and so help us to address these problems. But it is a big challenge. There's no, there's no doubting that. Yeah. Uh, just a comment about uh, inequality, and that is that I believe that one of the one of the ways to, to address inequality, and we've been doing that for, for quite some time now, very successfully, I would argue, is obviously education, skills development. Mm. And what we saw last year with the lockdown, still see that because of the lockdown, is that education seems to be in a, uh, in a transition, a, a significant transition. I mean, a business plan of education is still the same for the past, say, thousand years or so. And we've got, two, we, we've got a twins in grade one, 
And last year I was a grade one teacher and I can tell you it wasn't that easy, but my school made it very easy for me. The technology and the support that I get was, was really absolutely amazing. Is, a, is, is this something that government should be doing? Is technology going to change this? Are we in a... Uh, are we in a phase where this business plan that we've been having for an education for hundreds of years, that, that is in fact, gradually, or in fact, very quickly changing? Is it going to look different in future? I think it is, yes. And um, the, uh, I think Africa, actually, the African continent is at the epicenter of this revolution in education, which I think was going on before the pandemic, but which the pandemic massively accelerated, which is what pandemics do. They they don't change things, but they accelerate changes that are already going on. So in Africa, in places like Kenya, you have uh, the you know, bridge company, you have these private, low-cost private schools, school in a box, things, yeah. educate, private education providers. And just as with mobile telephony, all the really interesting innovations in things like delivery of education, teaching, and this kind of thing is happening in Africa. Uh, in places like Lagos and Nairobi and so on. Uh, and I think this is going to be one of those areas where Africa, along with India, is going to really steal a march, if you like, on the already rich countries, Europe and North America. And the key to it really is that it's possible to have education which combines regular get-togethers at um, physical plants and location with a lot of distance learning. Uh, and which also is structured in a different way. One of the most important things to realize, which I, you sort of alluded to in your initial remarks there, is that education does not equal schooling. The process of education is a process mm -hmm. of A, learning things, more importantly, even learning how to think and how to learn, and having your inherent capacities drawn out or developed. That's what the word actually means. It, 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 the Latin root means to draw out or to lead out. So um, that is what, you know, do, from do, a, a meaning out of and duco meaning to lead. And so uh, that is what education is. Schooling, the process you described, where you go into a building with a whole lot of other people, mm -hmm. all somehow mysteriously of the same age as yourself, mm -hmm. and you sit in rows in a room and somebody talks to you, um, and then a bell rings and you stop what you're doing and you go off somewhere else. That's actually something quite different. Um, and as a matter of fact, although in some ways that's very old, the modern form we're used to, where, for example, you're taught with only people of your age, that's a very recent invention. It was invented by the Prussians uh, in 1806 as part of their reforms after the Battle of Jena. And it, why did they do it? Well, they did it because they wanted to mass produce loyal and efficient soldiers and workers and subjects. So basically, what are what is schooling as opposed to education? And my very blunt but extreme answer is, it's essentially a form of state indoctrination and character molding. It's intended to produce people who are obedient, rule compliant, will do what they're told, uh, and are uh, trained to fit into hierarchical organizations, whether they be private or public, actually. Yeah. Uh, and that, I think, is what we're moving away from. Uh, very, very rapidly, particularly, as I say, in Africa, but elsewhere as well, towards a system which actually is much more focused on the real proper purpose of education, as I say, imparting knowledge, imparting skills, but also drawing out people's capacities, interests and the like, um, and done in a different way, one that isn't entirely home-based, that's a misnomer, uh, but which is done in a different way, so that, for example, you don't teach a subject by teaching one hour a week, 
for five years. Mm -hmm. What you do instead is have short, intense courses where you only study that one subject for, let's say, three or four weeks. And then about six months later, you have a refresher course to fix the memory. That's the way we teach driving. It's the way we teach music. It's the way we teach anything we actually care about. And mm -hmm. all the educational psychology tells us that's the way to actually teach people uh, in a way that will make things stick and that they will learn things. And so I think that this increasing is the kind of model we will be moving towards. Yeah, and probably less, less interference from the politicians, hopefully. Indeed, so. Absolutely, a completely different system. I mean, the point about education, the, the, the schooling system that the Prussians invented, is that it's a creature in creation, and a key institution, in fact, of the modern state. Uh, and uh, the, if we, the kind of world I anticipate, the state will be hardly involved at all. Maybe it will have a residual role as a standard setter, but even that I, I can see not being necessary. It's worth saying, though, by the way, that the key function of the modern educational system, particularly at higher and secondary level, is not education. It's certification. It's giving out bits exactly. of paper that people use to get access to high paid jobs. Exactly. And what we currently have is an elite who owe their position and status to possession of these bits of paper. So they're yeah. going to be very, very unhappy about this. But the, yeah. the problem is, there's too much of them. We are producing way too many people with these bits of paper for the number of high status yeah. positions that there are. And that's causing a lot of angst. So all this um, woke politics that you get at the moment in yeah. North America, my view is that that is actually a product of elite overproduction. It's essentially a form of competitive status signaling, which is used by people who are competing for the limited number of high status jobs to try and show that they are better and therefore more entitled to those jobs yes. than the next person. Uh, and so I, I think that, that that's where I can see a lot of political ructions coming up over the, the question of the, the yeah. status granting system of the, the current education system. No, well, you see that in South Africa as well. Our final senior certificate, they say you've got a piece of paper, you've got a qualification, but you do not have the necessary skills. No, absolutely. Uh, and so it's very easy to get that piece of paper. It's much more difficult, of course, to get the necessary skills that you can use in a modern economy. But in the case of South Africa, and I guess most countries in the world, the biggest expense item for, for a government, for the state, usually is education, with some other social expense items as well. Uh, and my question to you is, is that, is it inevitable, and if you look at most countries in the world, governments have been getting bigger, states have been getting bigger. Uh, and, and more and more people are trying to vote more and more benefits for themselves from the state. And yeah. eventually the thing becomes too top heavy and the thing falls over. Is that inevitable? Is that the inevitable sort of path that can be expected that all democracies will take eventually? Um, I think it's, it was inevitable in the 20th century. I, I think the work of people like the British economic historian Peter Lindert, who works in UC Davis in the States, shows that in the 20th century, late 19th and 20th century, once a country had certain things happen to it, its average income went over a certain level. And in particular, people tended to live beyond the age of 60 in sufficiently large numbers. You got a development of a large welfare state and you got the development typically of the state providing uh, welfare benefits of one kind or another, employing a lot of teachers to run an education system and very often, not always, but very often also employing lots and lots of health professionals to run state-delivered healthcare or funded healthcare. Uh, and with that, government explodes. Now, if you look at it, most governments in 1900 are spending about 10% of GDP. Uh, average now in the OECD countries is about 50%, uh, higher in some, bit lower in others, but around that. 
Uh, if you look at what that 50% of GDP consists of, it's almost entirely those three things, income transfers, education, health, those are the things. If they were doing that, they would be back at about 10 to 15% of GDP. Now, I think that probably was politically inevitable in the 20th century, but I don't think it's politically inevitable in the uh, century we're moving into because of the historical example that we can see before our eyes of East Asia, because the East Asian countries, which are in many ways at the cutting edge of the new economy and the new world economic order, places like Singapore and Taiwan, mm -hmm. they don't have such a large state expenditure. And if anything, the long run trend in those countries is for state spending to decline as a share of GDP. And that's because they have switched uh, those big items of expenditure into a kind of, at the moment, quasi-public, quasi-private thing. You have in Singapore forced savings. So the government forces you, by law, to surrender a certain amount of your income, but not to them. You, you put it into accounts in a uh, state-provident institution, as it's called, and that, that account then funds for things like payments if you lose your job or can't get a job, payments for your old age healthcare, payments for your healthcare, younger life. Crucially, the, the account is yours. So if you die before you draw your pension, your family inherit the pension pot, which is completely different to the system anywhere else. Now, what that means in East Asia is that you've got a system where you have all these benefits, but they're no longer directly provided by the government. The government mm -hmm. just provides the enabling mechanism. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the small government. The government in Singapore is notoriously active. It does a lot, the same in Taiwan or South Korea, but the government doesn't spend a lot, as or not as much as it, it used to. So I think what we're going to be seeing going forward, I think, is a world in which you have, uh, in some places, governments that are very active and do a lot, and in other places, governments that are less active and involve themselves in a smaller range of items, which is what I would prefer. Uh, but in neither of those cases will there be the very large range, very high levels of government spending as a share of GDP. Collective spending, if you will, will be done through non-governmental means. So I think that we'll retrospectively, we'll look back on the really big, big governments of the 20th century as a 20th century phenomenon, something that grew out of a particular set of political and economic and technological circumstances. Yeah. And I, I think that it will it will slowly disappear, partly, as you say, because these, these large government uh, institutions are simply impossible to run. Yeah. Uh, being the minister in charge of one of these things is a thankless job because everyone blames you for everything and you have absolutely no idea of what is going on most of the time. The organisation is simply too large. So you get all the brickbats. Nobody ever says thank you when you do something well, by the way. Um, and you get all the brickbats, but you have seen no real control over it. And so uh, the whole system, as you say, is just far too top heavy. Uh, and it's like the old Soviet Union. Eventually, the whole thing is just yeah. becoming unmanageable and it will, it will yeah. gradually break up. Yeah. Well, we're running out of time. Now. I've got so much more to, to, to ask you. But one question before we get to this wonderful world that you've just described to us. In the meantime, we're still Keynesians, I guess, all of us, most of us. Mm. If, well, if you see what they're doing in, in the US, well, what they're doing in Europe and what you're doing in, in Britain as well, things like, yeah. for example, <laughs> uh, fiscal policy that is uh, the most expansion has ever been since the, at least since the Second World War. Mm. Debt levels are, um, state debt levels, government debt levels are at record high levels, and they are borrowing like there's no tomorrow. It's, yeah. a new, it's one stimulus program after the other on the fiscal side. In the meantime, monetary policy, 
Uh, interest rates are at record low levels. You get funny terminologies like quantitative easing or yield curve control or even modern monetary theory and all these sort of funny sort of stuff. So in the meantime, we still gain Keynesians. Where is all this going to end? The financial markets, of course, love this. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, I, I'm reminded of Herbert Stein's famous principle. If something does not, cannot go on forever, then it won't. Uh, you know, the, as he famously said when yeah. he was president of Nixon's Council of Economic Advisors at the time. The problem, of course, is that you don't know when it's going to stop. Now, why are we in this situation? Well, um, you mentioned modern monetary theory, MMT. I actually think that as a factual description of the monetary system we have, MMT is completely accurate. Yes. Since 1971, we have lived in a completely fear-based money system. They're quite right about that. The government can indeed, as we see at the moment, just yes. print money and create money out of nothing to muster resources and do whatever it likes. And and so that, that is the world we're living in. Now, the difference between me and the MMT people, like Steph Kelton and so on, is that they think, oh, this is wonderful. Let's use it. And my view is, oh my God, something is seriously wrong here. And why do I say that? Well, it's because since 1971, the monetary system has become progressively more and more deranged. And the root of that derangement is that there's a separation between the amount of money of all kinds, but particularly credit that is being created by both central banks and the private banking system, and the actual physical growth of services and the productive capacity of the economy. Now, those two used to be linked, and they were linked ultimately by gold, because under the gold standard, the world money supply grew at about 3% per annum, which happens to be about the rate of growth of the actual physical economy. So the two were broadly in line. Under the Bretton Woods system, the growth of dollars, which were linked to gold, was also broadly kept in line via that gold link uh, with the growth of the actual productive capacity of the economy and all the other currencies of the world, because they exchanged at fixed rates to the dollar, they also had to only grow at that rate. Now, what happened in 1971 was that Nixon, for various reasons, broke the link between the dollar and gold. And at that point, and also with the move to floating exchange rates, uh, suddenly money just became this thing that floats around in the ether. It no longer is linked to actual physical uh, things and or the physical growth in productive capacity and that explains things like the what you mentioned which is the fact that okay the world economy doesn't necessarily look in really good shape i mean we just had a pandemic which has given a big short-term hit to the supply side and yet things like the stock market uh, markets in commodities markets in everything they're gone through the roof why because the world is awash with money created by central banks through fancy tricks like the qe that you mentioned and all that money is causing very pronounced cantillon effects. Who has got first dibs on it, really? And the answer is the financial sector and people with access to the financial center, which is the rich. Basically. Exactly. And yeah. so what has happened is it's socialism for the rich, basically. And what has happened yeah. is that this money has been used to buy the kind of things rich people buy, which is assets. And so we've had the most incredible asset price inflation. And at the same time, of course, it's driven the rate of um, interest down to zero. In fact, it probably would be less than zero if the central banks could work out a way of doing it by banning the rest of us from using cash. I really hope they have a go at that, by the way, because I think that would lead to an explosive growth in the use of cryptocurrencies. Um, that's my next. That's my next uh, question. That's, that's the other thing. No, I, I think yeah. I yeah. think that basically central banks everywhere 
are really, really keen to be able to have negative nominal interest rates. And uh, the thing is, it, it's elementary economic theory. You know, if you have, let's say, minus 5% interest rates, people will just take all their money out of the bank and shove it under the mattress yes. uh, as cash. Uh, but they'd be very stupid not to. And the thing is, therefore, in order to have negative interest rates, you have to ban the use of cash. And so, uh, you know, we've had this book recently, uh, what was it called? The 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 ills of cash or something like that, which is all about how we should get rid of cash because, well, apparently it helps terrorists. Well, you know, that's what that's mentioned all the way through it. But the real reason is so we can have negative interest rates. Uh, but if they do that, um, the civil liberties implications, for one thing, are very, very bad because it means the government then controls access to purchasing power for everybody. But also, I think it would lead to an explosive growth in uh, private money, cryptocurrencies yeah. and that would be the end for central banks and state controlled money system if they do that, uh, which is the other reason I think the smarter people know this and that's why they're still very leery about it. But uh, going back to your original question, I don't think this can go on forever. Sooner or later, it's going to come to a massive uh, blowout uh, when essentially all of this credit, a lot of it anyway, is going to be proved to be unsustainable because credit by definition is future income brought exactly. into the present. Yeah. and. That, that credit is only worth something if the future income, which is intended to service it, actually shows up. And if growth rates are not as fast as they are predicated to be by this growth of credit, that credit will not be serviced or, or repaid, and you will get massive debt defaults. Uh, not so much by governments, by the way. Um, the MMT people are quite right. In extremists, the governments can always monetize their debt. Yes, exactly. Have a inflation. But private debt issuers, they're in a different situation. There is a colossal amounts of corporate paper out there. And I just, you know, I think a lot of this is never going to be paid. And that will be yeah in, a, in, yeah, in the case of South Africa, um, I've calculated this as the South African currency, the RAND is to, as this year, it's 60 years old. Before that, we had the British pound in South Africa, or the South African pound, which is pretty much linked to the British pound. And over this 60 years, the South African currency has lost nearly 99% of its value, nearly 99% of its value. Uh, and we've got inflation targets of between 3 and 6% in South Africa. And in the case of the US, it's not the same sort of numbers, but it's pretty much the same sort of story. Yeah. All government monies over time, have they've all either disappeared or they are in the process of disappearing. Now, so, and I've got two, two questions basically on that. One is, is that, so if they create all this money out of nothing, apart from asset inflation, where's inflation? That's not there. And my, my, my second question is, do, do you really think private monies or crypto monies, uh, it's inevitable? Are we going to move to that? Is that going to be, is that going to create a more stable environment or more political strategy? I think, I think eventually they will. I mean, at the moment, everyone talks about Bitcoin. The problem with yeah. Bitcoin is that it has a fundamental design flaw, which is that there's ultimately a fixed amount of Bitcoin that can be created because of the way the algorithm works. And what that means is that, therefore, it can't fulfill all of the functions of money. Um, and in particular, it can't be a stable store of value because it becomes a, given a fixed supply, it becomes essentially a speculative investment good, as we can yeah. see. And therefore, its value in nominal terms fluctuates. So it can't be a meaningful unit of account uh, and it can't be a meaningful store of value. So um, I don't think Bitcoin will work. But sooner or later, somebody is going to produce something like Bitcoin, which doesn't have that design flaw. What you want is, a is something like 
gold, if you like, electronic gold, if you will. You yeah. want an electronic money which is linked to the growth of the world economy, the actual productive capacity of that economy. And that is a money that would hold its value. Now, the thing at the moment is people, and this is where I think economists have it wrong, the economists think that there's a single thing called money which has four functions, uh, yeah. you know, medium of exchange, store of value, unit of account and promise of future payment. Yeah. Actually, if you look at the history, and this is where, to go back to the point you made right at the start, the historians, I think, have the advantage over the theoretical economists. If you go look at history, in many, many places for very long periods, what you actually have is three or four different kinds of money, one for each purpose or function. Yeah. And what has happened um, with fiat money in the 20th century, and particularly since 71, is that the promise of future payment function and the medium of exchange function have become dominant, and therefore the store of value function has been completely disregarded. Now, if you, if you look, say, China, which has the longest monetary history on the planet, going back two and a half thousand years, continuous monetary history, China historically had three different kinds of money. Um, you had cash, those little copper coins with a square yeah. hole in the middle. Uh, they, they were the medium of exchange, privately produced for much of China's history. Uh, they were also the unit of account in the form of the string of cash. Uh, then you had silver ingots, tile as they were called, they were the store of value money. You had mild inflation in always in the medium of exchange money, but tile retained that value because they were a different kind of money. And then you had flying money, as they called it, paper money, which was the promise of future payment money, yeah. usually issued privately initially, although the government did it as well. Now, on one occasion in Chinese history, they issued too much promise of future payment money, and they got the world's first hyperinflation in the, uh, in the 14th century under the Yuan. Uh, the, the Mongol dynasty of Kublai Khan. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that, that taught them a very painful lesson. And the subsequent dynasty, the Ming, they basically said, well, we, you know, forget this. We are going to strictly control the issue of promise of future payment money and stick to silver. Thank you very much. Uh, and so we're, we're basically repeating the experiment that the Chinese emperors did 600 years ago. We've allowed the promise of future payment money element to become detached from reality mm -hmm. and to totally dominate the rest of the monetary system. And I think one of the ways forward, which I think cryptocurrencies will help with, is to actually have, like the old Chinese system, different kinds of money for the different functions. Because they, they, they need to have different qualities. You're not really bothered if it's a 2 or 3% inflation rate in your medium of exchange money because you just want to literally use it. Whereas yeah. that's not a good idea for the store of value money. Now, let's see if we can close this circle. We started off with a bit of history and ideologies and all that. So what I've heard from you is some amazing technological changes. Uh, people are moving, becoming more urbanized. People are becoming more mm. technologically savvy. Um, I see a future of city-states, pretty much, like what we had in Europe a couple, of, a couple of hundred years ago. And not necessarily physical city-states. It can be digital it comes somewhere in the, in the cloud you can have you can join the flat earth society mm. and they can issue their own currency as well is that the, what the future is going to look like does it mean that this thing that we call the sovereign state that we are perhaps at the beginning of the end of countries of sovereign states it's a it's a very strong possible future um if you look at the course of human history there are two forms that power takes if you like 
the dominant one, the common one, which we're all familiar with, is territory, where if you are the king yeah. or the emperor, you exercise power over a defined and delimited area of the planet's surface and also over the people who happen to live on that space. Now, the other model of power, which you get with, say, the medieval church or uh, with a lot of other institutions historically and with leagues of city-states, is one where the territorial element is much, much less. What matters is the network. And so it's the network of links between people, say, the Catholic Church, say, for example. Sure, it does own land, but the Catholic Church and the orders, like the Templars, the various monastic orders, although they own small bits of land, what really creates their power is the network and links between them focused on the papacy. And that's the model we're moving to. And the key to it, I think, is the growing division, politically, economically, culturally, socially, between cities and particularly globally connected cities and the rest of the world. Now, if you look about the African continent, for example, if you look at the African economic figures by country, they look not very impressive. But if you look at cities, Africa has 20 of the world's most dynamic, fast-growing, innovative cities, places like uh, Luanda, uh, Nairobi, Lagos, uh, Dakar. These are amazingly dynamic places, and they're some of the fastest-growing places on the planet. The problem Africa has is that while it has some of the world's most successful and growing cities, the bits in between are not doing very well. But that's the same problem that you find in every um, country at the moment. So in Britain, London, extraordinarily dynamic and successful, uh, mm -hmm. creates more than half of Britain's total productivity comes out of London. Yes. But other parts of the country just languishing. Similarly, in the United States, the major metropolitan areas like Atlanta and Chicago, the Bay Area, L.A., New York, amazingly economically dynamic. But then the bits in between, the rural areas, the small town areas that voted for Donald Trump, doing really badly and, in fact, depopulating at an incredible rate. And so I think that what we're seeing is a growing tension between the territorial nation state um, which is still the unit that everything is organized around and the interlinked connection of uh, global cities, which is where the world economy actually is. And that's also where the personal connections through the cyberspace links that you mentioned are also becoming much more uh, strong. And so I think we're going to see a kind of big fight going forward in, this, in the coming century between those two different models of power and governance. Uh, what I hope is, and it goes back to the point I made earlier, I'd like to see big countries break up, is that we do indeed move to a world of networks, a world which is much more open, much more flexible, yeah. and where we have city regions as the basic unit. Yeah. If you think about South Africa, I mean, in, in, economically, I would say it makes more sense to think of South Africa as consisting of, uh, you know, Greater Johannesburg, Greater Durban, East London, maybe, uh, and uh, Cape Town. Uh, than and Pretoria, perhaps, although you might love that with Greater Johannesburg, uh, than as thinking as a whole single entity. It's really those big city regions yeah. that are the, the core of what we call misleadingly the South African economy. Uh, and uh, it's, it's the same in every other, other country in the world these days. Well, one thing is for sure is that uh, I think we're going to repeat history, but it's going to happen much quicker than in the past. It's going to be, it's going to be yeah. a change. It's going to be a lot of change. Uh, it's gonna. There will be a lot of pain. There will be a need for a lot of adaption. But there's a lot of exciting times lying ahead, and I think we're going to Very continue so, yeah. this trajectory of wealth creation and this amazing journey that we have been on for the last couple of thousands of years. It was really an amazing honor to talk to you. 
Um, uh, and I've learned so much, Dr. Davies. I've learned so much from you, and I could speak, keep on talking to you for hours and hours on end. It was really absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for joining My us. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, and I'm looking forward to to uh, go and have a look at a couple of more of your podcasts and waiting for one or two more books from you. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I, I could tell you by the way, just to give you a plug. I've just recently published a book on. Uh, it's called the Streetwise Guide to the Devil and His Works. So I wanted to call it the Life and Times of Satan, but the publisher wouldn't let me have that title. <laughs> I'll have a look for that one. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Uh, Dr. St Dr. Stephen, uh, Stephen Davis, thank you very much for, for joining us today. It was really an amazing uh, opportunity for us to talk to you, and I've learned so much, like I've said. And you've been watching Worldview. My name is David Wood. Good day. Mm -hmm.